Well, thank you for joining us for another week of reading through the New Testament. I'm so glad you're able to join us again this week. Um, This is episode eight, week seven for the week of February 13th. Um, We are in now diving into uh, fully, completely now into Mark's gospel. Um, This week, Mark chapter three through chapter seven. So we're studying now a, a second gospel, the second gospel account that we have in the New Testament of who Jesus is, what he did why he did it, and um, really just helping us, again, further fulfill that and, and uh, grasp the portrait of Jesus that is written in the Word that God wants us to have in our minds about who this Savior is and how he saves us and what he wants um, us to believe about him and to how we can honor him with our lives. So um, as we've talked last week, we talked a little bit about Mark's gospel. Remember, it's divided up into two basic divisions, right? The first roughly eight chapters um, into the middle of the eighth chapter are about Jesus, the powerful Messiah, the Son of God, who is the powerful Messiah. The second part is that Jesus is the Son of God, who is also the suffering servant. And that is kind of the beauty of Mark's gospel, is weaving together those two aspects of Jesus as powerful and yet suffering, and yet in both ways, he is the Son of God. And uh, that is what uh, Mark is, is wanting us to know. This is, of course, remember, Mark is, uh, was a close friend of the Apostle Peter. And so really, in a lot of ways, what we probably have here in Mark's gospel is Peter's recollections being written by the hand of Mark and and related to us through uh, Mark. In Mark chapter 3 this week, right, Jesus is is in his ministry, and um, he's uh, working and and preaching to people. Uh, He shows his power over sickness and demonic forces. He will eventually show his power over the forces of nature when he calms a storm and such. And he is rejected by his hometown in Galilee, he, or in uh, Nazareth. You know, um, we, we read about the fact that he, he uh, begins to, to acknowledge the fact that he has uh, followers now, and those are his real family. Uh, the, this would, and think about this as well. If you're a Gentile Christian in Rome hearing this gospel, how amazing it would have been to... Um, be reminded of the aspects of Jesus's ministry that especially highlighted the fact that this community of faith that Jesus came to to um, renew and that Jesus was about and in a sense found, but it was really the continuation of the spiritual community of the Old Testament, but now expanded onto an international level. Um, think about how that would have been comforting to you to realize that Jesus is saying, no, my real family are all those who place their trust in me. This is no longer based upon blood or race or things, something like that. This is a based upon your faith and your confidence in me, regardless, regardless of whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. And we see Mark does this, right? And Peter is doing this as he's talking to Mark, right? And relating these these special things, right? We're, we're reading about how Jesus welcomes all of us, regardless of whether or not we're Jew or Gentile, to trust in him. He will also, we see this later on with the Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite woman. She's a Gentile. 
and she places her trust in Jesus, right? We see this earlier right before that with the traditions of men where Jesus is um, here and and he's... um, He's uh, talking about the root of sin and, and the traditions of men. But you'll notice there's a little line that says, by this, he declared all foods clean. Because remember, Jesus said, it's not what you put into your body that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of your mouth that makes you unclean. And Mark gives us a little commentary and says, the implication of this, basically, is that all foods are clean. So the distinction between Jew and Gentile as far as the food laws is effectively null and void. And we know after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, those laws cease to be binding on anyone on the face of the earth, Jew or Gentile. So um, the first part, I'm stealing this from one of my uh, New Testament uh, overviews. The, in chapter Mark chapter 1, 14, verse through the rest of chapter 3, we have Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Um, in Mark chapter 4, 1 through 8, 26, we're not going to read chapter 8 this week, but that's going to cover the rest of what we're going to talk about this week through 7. We have Jesus' ministry on and around the Sea of Galilee. So he's ministering around this, this body of water. He feeds the 5,000. He walks on water. He casts out demons. He does all of these things, right? And he's showing his power and authority as the Son of God, who is the powerful Messiah, and yet who's also bringing about and breaking down the barriers that that uh, that the walls that separate Jew and Gentile in doing this even even at this point in the gospel right we see hints and and you could see why this would be so comforting for a Gentile Roman Christian to read this and to grasp this and isn't this comforting for us to realize that this is who Jesus is he is for all of us not simply the Jews um, and not simply for the Gentiles but for all men and women who will look to him in saving faith and trust in him. Okay, so that's kind of a quick overview um, of Mark 3 through 7 of what we're reading this week. And so I want to give you some thoughts, some things to think about uh, this week as you're reading through the Gospel of Mark, and just some things to you know stick in your minds and and to uh, to, to meditate upon. Um, about what we're what we're reading here. I think I've got most of this is from J.C. Ryle again, and I think I've got one from Charles Spurgeon uh, from, from this uh, section of Scripture. So the first thing I want to talk about is at the tail end of um, Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35, um, Jesus there is talking. Remember, his mother and his brothers show up. Um, Jesus says, who, is, who are my mother and my brothers? And he looks around at those about him and says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And Jesus here is highlighting the nature of the church, the spiritual family of God. That, that's what we have here at MNBC. That's what we've been placed into. And this is what J.C. Ryle talks about here in this section. He writes this, In these verses, which immediately precede this passage, we see our blessed Lord accused by the scribes of being in league with the devil. They said, He has Beelzebul, and by the prince of the devils casts he out devils. In the verses we have now read, we find that this absurd charge of the scribes was not all that Jesus had to endure at this time. We are told that Jesus' mother and brothers arrived at the house where he was teaching. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with them. They could not yet understand the beauty and usefulness of the life that our Lord was living. Though they doubtless loved him well, 
they would sincerely have persuaded him to cease from his work and spare himself. Little did they know what they were doing. Little had they observed or understood our Lord's words when he was only twelve years old. Know you not that I must be about my father's business? It is interesting to mark the quiet, firm perseverance of our Lord in the face of all discouragements. None of these things moved him. The slanderous suggestions of enemies and the well-meant remonstrances of ignorant friends were alike powerless to turn him from his course. He had set his face as a flint towards the crown or towards the cross and the crown. He knew the work he had come into the world to do. He had a baptism to be baptized and was straightened until it was accomplished. Luke 12:50. So let it be with all true servants of Christ. Let nothing turn them for a moment out of the narrow way or make them stop and look back. Let them not heed the ill-natured remarks of enemies. Let them not give way to the well-intentioned but mistaken treaties of unconverted relations and friends. Let them reply in the words of Nehemiah, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Nehemiah 6.3 Let them say, I have taken up the cross, and I will not cast it away. We learn from these verses, Ryle continues, one mighty lesson. We learn who they are that are reckoned the relations of Jesus Christ. They are they who are his disciples and do the will of God. Of such the great head of the church says, The same is my brother and sister and mother. How much there is in this single expression. What a rich mine of consolation it opens to all true believers. Who can conceive the depth of our Lord's love towards Mary, the mother that bore him, and on whose bosom he had been nursed? Who can imagine the breadth of his love towards his brethren according to the flesh, with whom the tender years of his childhood had been spent? Doubtless no heart ever had within it such deep wellsprings of affection as the heart of Christ. Yet even he says, of all who do the will of God, that each is his brother and sister and mother. Let all true Christians drink comfort out of these words. Let them know that there is one at least who knows them, loves them, cares for them, and reckons them as his own family. What though they be poor in this world, they have no cause to be ashamed when they remember that they are the brethren and sisters of the Son of God. What though they be persecuted and ill-treated in their own homes because of their religion? They may remember the words of David and apply them to their own case. When my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. Psalm 27.10 Finally, let all who persecute and ridicule others because of their religion take warning by these words and repent. Whom are they persecuting and ridiculing? The relations of Jesus, the Son of God the family of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Surely they would do wisely to hold their peace and consider well what they are doing. These whom they persecute have a mighty friend. Their Redeemer is mighty. He shall plead their cause. Proverbs 23, 11. I think that is a a very helpful uh, just commentary upon what Jesus is highlighting here. What What a wonderful thing it is that Jesus with all of the perfect full love that he had for his earthly family, yet also regards us with that same even greater love towards us who believe in him and who do the will of the Father. Um, you know, I think that's one of the things we need to remember as well as church 
as the members of the church, that we are members each of one another and of Christ, that we are a new spiritual family together. And this isn't simply a, um, you know, just simply kind of like a, a simple metaphor. It's reality, isn't it? We really are a family. And just like your earthly family, you don't get to pick and choose who's in your earthly family. And funny to say, but you don't get to pick and choose who's in your spiritual family. We come from a diverse background. We come from different economic backgrounds, different family backgrounds. We have different likes, different dislikes. We have different quirks and things that make each of us odd and different or, or unique and special. But whenever God puts us together, we're family because we're in Jesus together. We're part of the family of God. And so that is one of the things we should remember is that whenever I look at my brothers and sisters here in the church, this is family time, so to speak. We are gathered as a spiritual family. And we are, we are here not because of our own worth, but because the Son of God who is himself worthy has loved us with such great love. And therefore, his love is the, the foundation and the basis and the impetus for our love back to him and our love for one another. We are brothers and sisters in the Lord. And really, if you think about it, the earthly family is a temporary thing, isn't it? Jesus says eventually that whenever we are raised um, from the dead, he says, remember um, that, those, that those in the resurrection are like the angels in heaven. They neither marry or are given in marriage anymore. The earthly family that we experience in this world is very good, and we do not downplay the goodness and the great gifts that come to us and the great uh, benefits and, and wonderful blessings that come to us through family in our earthly families here. But this is actually a temporary uh, reality that will ultimately give way to an even bigger, more grand, more beautiful, eternal reality, the eternal spiritual family around the throne of God in Jesus Christ. So whenever it seems as if your earthly family is more concrete and real than your spiritual family, we need to, with our minds, our minds need to be renewed to reflect upon what Jesus is here teaching us, that actually the more real thing in this world and in eternity is actually the spiritual bonds that we have together in Jesus Christ, and that we can take so much comfort that he knows us and sees us and loves us. And this also means that the things that divide us outside of the church can have no place to divide us in the church. We may have differences of opinion on this or that other issue, um, things you understand that are not necessary to believing about true Christianity. Um, but whenever we come together in church, we are to regard each other equally as brother and sisters in the Lord. We are to pray and to hope that our children and our grandchildren and our friends will join this spiritual family and be adopted and brought in because it is the most wonderful thing in the world to be a part of the spiritual family of God, the church. Okay, second of all, I want to talk with you about from Mark chapter 
5, Mark chapter 5, and this is a beautiful story where Jesus goes and casts out the demons, remember, sends them into the pigs, they go down the hillside, and the people come and say, Jesus, please go, please don't stay, and everyone wants him, everyone is uh, kind of disenchanted with Jesus, it comes across at least, except for this one man who had been possessed with the demons, and he wishes that he could go he begs that he can go with Jesus. And Jesus says, no, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And that man goes and does exactly what the Lord Jesus says. This is, again, another instance where Jesus is venturing into Gentile territories, Gentile areas. And again, remember, you're a Christian in Rome reading Mark's gospel, kind of different from Matthew's gospel. They're not saying contradictory things, just looking at the same story of Jesus and what happened from a different angle. And as you're reading this this narrative here about this man and his salvation, his experience of God's grace in his life, the demons being cast out, it's just so important to be helpfully reminded of, of that Gentile nature, again, that Jesus cares for us as well. He cares for the outsiders. He cares for all men. So he talks here, and this is about the Lord Jesus and his people, again from J.C. Ryle. Ryle writes this, We learn from these verses that the Lord Jesus knows better than his people what is the right position for them to be in. We are told that when our Lord was on the point of leaving the country of the Gadarenes, the man that had been possessed with the devil begged him that he might go with him. We can well understand that request. He felt grateful for the blessed change that had taken place in himself. He felt full of love towards his deliverer. He thought he could not do better than follow our Lord and go with him as his companion and disciple. He was ready to give up home and country and go after Christ. And yet, strange as it appears at first sight, the request was refused. Jesus did not let him. Our Lord had other work for him to do. Our Lord saw better than he did in what way he could glorify God most. Go home to your friends, he says, and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. There are lessons of profound wisdom in these words. The place that Christians wish to be in is not always the place which is best for their souls. The position that they would choose if they could have their own way is not always that which Jesus would have them occupy. Now, there, he has more to say about this, but I think this is very helpful that this man wished to go with Jesus, and we can appreciate and applaud that desire, can't we, that Ryle's pointing out here. Um, but also, we need to trust the fact that whenever Jesus says, no, stay here, that the Lord Jesus has a plan for our lives. Maybe you've had a plan in your life and you wish, and it was even a good desire to go do something here or there or to be involved in this or that, or you saw your life's plans turning out one way because you wished that it could turn out that way so that you could honor God with your life in that way. Um, And it just didn't come to fruition. And it can be discouraging um, whenever our plans And we feel like we have those good intentions that we want to honor God, like this man did, um, and yet they don't come to pass. And it's just so important to remember, like J.C. Ryle here is saying, that the Lord Jesus knows better than us, and he knows what is good for us. And And again, I'm not saying we know why it always happens. Maybe later on in life you'll look back and you'll be able to see why this happened and how good it was that the Lord Jesus did know better. But maybe we won't know all the answers in this life. 
Um, We probably won't. But I think it's so helpful and comforting to remember that the Lord Jesus knows better than we do, and he puts us where he wants us. Um, And he works in mysterious ways to accomplish that purpose. Um, One more thing underneath this section from Ryle where he writes this. He writes, We learn for another thing from these verses that a believer's own home has the first claims on his attention. We are taught that in the striking words which our Lord addresses to the man who had been possessed with the devil. Go home, he says, to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. The friends of this man had probably not seen him for some years, excepting under the influence of Satan. Most likely he had been as one dead to them, or worse than dead, and a constant cause of trouble, anxiety, and sorrow. Here then was the path of duty. Here was the way by which he could most glorify God. Let him go home and tell his friends what Jesus had done for him. Let him be a living witness before their eyes of the compassion of Christ. Let him deny himself the pleasure of being in Christ's bodily presence in order to do the higher work of being useful to others. How much there is in these simple words of of our Lord. What thoughts they ought to stir up in the hearts of all true Christians. Go home and tell your friends. Home is the place above all others where the child of God ought to make his first endeavors to do good. Home is the place where he is most continually seen and where the reality of his grace ought most truly to appear. Home is the place where his best affections ought to be concentrated. Home is the place where he should strive daily to witness for Christ. Home is the place where he was daily doing harm by his example so long as he served the world. Home is the place where he is specially bound to be a living epistle of Christ so soon as he has been mercifully taught to serve God. May we all remember these things daily. May it never be said of us that we are saints abroad, but wicked by our own fireside, talkers about religion abroad, but worldly and ungodly at home. That is a great reminder again, isn't it? Um, And it kind of helps balance us because like we talked earlier, right, about how our primary reality now is that spiritual family that we have in the church. But whenever we say that as well, we're, again, not neglecting the fact that the home, our earthly families, our earthly relations, um, our hometown, and that maybe includes all the friends we have or our neighbors, all those people that we come in contact with, um, it doesn't neglect the fact or or deny the fact that we are to do good there first and foremost um, to others. We are now part of a spiritual family, and we want all these other people to be part of the spiritual family with us, don't we? Our children, our wives, our husbands, um, our aunts, our uncles, everybody, our parents, our neighbors, our friends, everyone in our hometown, we would, we, or, or wherever we're from or wherever we find ourselves at right now, we want to be uh, examples and, and, and people that tell other people about the gospel of Christ, and we want to do good to them. And so as we think about the gospel, how it transforms us, let's think about this man, about how God has put you where you're at for a reason. Only you can do the job that God has given you to do where you're called to be. You may feel that it's not important, but it is very important, and the Lord has not made a mistake. You're where you're at for a reason. Even if you don't see that reason or you struggle to believe that it's true, it is true. God has put you there for a reason. 
Go and tell what God has done for your soul. Go tell the world and tell other people about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And share the love of Christ with them. Love them. Do good to them. Do good to your neighbors and to those that are under your roof. Um, Such a wonderful thing of Christianity, isn't it? Whenever Christianity is first and foremost a thing where it's seen in the home. And Ryle gives that great point where maybe the other danger is sometimes we're really good talkers about Christianity to people outside our homes. Maybe people, but then when we talk to people within our homes, with under our roofs that live with us, we realize, um, uh, I'm not the person I should be here. We need to repent of that change and ask God's grace to help us to do good to people under our roof, just as we do to people outside. Okay, Christ's feelings towards people. Because we see here in Mark chapter 6, right, Jesus calls the 12 apostles, and he's getting ready to feed the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6. There's two feedings that we read about in Mark's gospel, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. This is the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus here calls his disciples away for a rest after they've been preaching and ministering uh, the gospel. And he sees all of these people coming to him. And we read in verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So we see here about Christ's feelings towards people. This is by J.C. Ryle again. He writes, finally, let us mark the feeling, feelings of our Lord Jesus Christ towards the people who came together to him. We read that he was moved with compassion toward them because they were as sheep without a shepherd. They were destitute of teachers. They had no guides but the blind scribes and Pharisees. They had no spiritual food but man-made traditions. Thousands of immortal souls stood before our Lord, ignorant, helpless, and on the high road to ruin. It touched the gracious heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was moved with compassion toward them. He began to teach them many things. Let us never forget that our Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. High in heaven, at God's right hand, he still looks with compassion on the children of men. He still pities the ignorant and those who are out of the way. He is still willing to teach them many things. Special as his love is towards his own sheep who hear his voice, he still has a mighty general love towards all mankind, a love of real pity, a love of compassion. We must not overlook this. It is a poor theology which teaches that Christ cares for none except believers. There is warrant in Scripture for telling the chief of sinners that Jesus pities them and cares for their souls, that Jesus is willing to save them and invites them to believe and be saved. Let us ask ourselves as we leave the passage whether we know anything of the mind of Christ. Are we, like him, tenderly concerned about the souls of the unconverted? Do we, like him, feel deep compassion for all who are yet as sheep without a shepherd? Do we care about the impenitent and ungodly near our own doors? Do we care about the heathen, the Jew, the Mohammedan, by that J.C. Ryle means the Muslim, and the Roman Catholic in foreign lands? 
Do we use every means and give our money willingly to spread the gospel in the world? These are serious questions and demand a serious reply. The man who cares nothing for the souls of other people is not like Jesus Christ. It may well be doubted whether he has converted himself and knows the value of his own soul. Really comforting words, but also convicting words uh, because of Christ's compassion to other people. That is one of the things that always does hit you when you read the Gospels, just the consistent compassion and the concern of Jesus for other people, his love for the lost, for the wayward, the straying. I think it's very interesting as well that at the last day, Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. But before that last day, like right now, Jesus looks at all men as sheep without a shepherd, in a sense. And I don't want to press that analogy too far, but what I'm saying is, is do we look at other people as sheep without a shepherd? In other words, we're hoping that they will one day show themselves to really be sheep underneath the shepherd, because it can be so easy to look at other people and forget to see them as, at the very least, potential sheep that need to be in the sheepfold. Sometimes we can be very cold towards the unbelieving world or unbelieving persons. Maybe they've hurt us. Maybe they've done us harm. Maybe they've made fun of us. Uh, maybe there's some reason that we, we have been hurt by them. Or maybe we're just cold. And we, are, uh, we have, as J.C. Rouse says, forgotten the value of our own soul that we have forgotten the value of theirs. Or maybe it's because we haven't warmed our souls by the fire of God's word. That can also be. If we're not next to Jesus, living amongst him, and if we're not nurturing and, and, um, you know, just sitting at the feet of Jesus in scripture and prayer, then our hearts will become hard because that's the natural inclination they have. So we want to be near Jesus, that our hearts will be warm with the soft love, yet powerful compassion that he shows others. And we want to have that same compassion in our hearts for other people around us. Okay. Jesus uh, then does the miracle of the 5,000, right? He feeds the 5,000, performs this amazing miracle. But Spurgeon has a sermon called The Miracles of the Loaves, and he bases it off of Mark 6, 52, and he's really talking about the whole uh, feeding of the 5,000, but Mark 6, 52, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And this is, of course, the story right after the feeding of the 5,000, whenever Jesus walks on the water to them in the storm. And we read that they hadn't actually gotten the point of the feeding of the 5,000. Notice we mentioned um, in the last episode, at least, that the disciples are pictured in Mark's gospel as really ignorant and not getting it. Um, again, that could be Peter's influence through Mark, really trying to emphasize that point. That we had no idea. You can imagine Peter telling Mark, we had no idea. I had no idea what Jesus was trying to teach me through those 5,000, feeding of the 5,000. I had totally, it totally went over my head, right? And you could just see Peter um, berating himself for why didn't I not get it sooner? Um, and uh, here, Spurgeon has a whole sermon about the, the feeding of the 5,000, the miracle of the loaves, he says. But this is from one section of it. And he breaks down the miracle into different sections there, but he uh, he has this. This is Spurgeon. 
Now came the work itself, the eating. The disciples distributed the bread and the fish as quickly as they could, and the people began to eat. They all ate of the provision, and they were all filled. Now, what should every soul here conclude but this? If Jesus has provided spiritual meat, he has not provided it to be looked at. He has not set it before us that we may merely hear about it. He has provided it that it might all of it be eaten. What is there for me? Lord, I am hungry. Grant me a meal. Oh, souls, if you would hear sermons with the view of knowing what there is in them for yourselves, that you might feed upon them, what blessed work it would be to preach to you. But we hold up the bread of heaven and descant upon its excellencies and tell you of its sweetness and persuade you to taste and see how good it is. And then we have the unhappiness of seeing you turn your backs both upon it and upon the great Lord of the feast. And you go on your way as if you cared neither for him nor for his bounties. The disciples had not this sorrow to distress them. None of the multitude refused the Lord's provision. The miracle of the loaves and the fishes would have been a poor, lame business if the crowds had not eaten of the food so wondrously supplied. What? Jesus Christ a Savior and no sinner saved? Christ a physician and no sick healed? It were a sorry business. We must have the sinners saved and the sick ones healed, or Jesus is not honored. Ought not this to encourage all of you to lay hold upon Christ, because he is set forth on purpose to be laid hold upon? Ought not this to encourage you to feast upon him? Because we must have been meant to be fed upon. He must have been meant to be fed upon. If you put two canaries in a cage tonight, and in the morning when they wake, they see a quantity of seed in a box, what will the birds do? Will they stop and ask what the seeds are there for? No, but they, but they each reason thus. Here is a little hungry bird, and there is some seed. These two things go well together, and straightway they eat. Even thus, if you were in your right senses and had not been perverted by sin, you would say, Here is a Savior, and here is a sinner. These two things go well together. Dear Savior, save me a sinner. Here is a feast of mercy, and here is a, feast of, and here is a hungry sinner. What can that feast be for, but for, be for but for the hungry? And I am such. Lord, I will even lay to, to at this blessed festival of yours, and unless you come and tell me to be gone, I will feast till I am full. Did you ever know of Jesus say to a sinner, You have no right here? No, but it is written, Him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. No one was upbraided for eating that day, or for eating too much. Neither will any sinner ever be blamed for taking hold upon Christ, or for taking too hearty a hold upon him. Come and take him, O anxious one, and the more fully you can take him, the more will Jesus be pleased. Why flows the river but to make glad your fields? Why sparkles the fountain but to quench your thirst? Why shines the sun but for your eyes to be blessed with his light? As you breathe the air around you because you feel it must have been made for you to breathe, so receive the full, free salvation of Jesus Christ because it is provided and you are in need of it. No mandate of heaven exists to shut you out, but every sacred doctrine, doctrine is an argument why you should come and welcome and take Jesus freely. 
The crowds all ate. None were so obstinate as to decline the free food. Did they receive the bread which perishes? I charge you then, glad, accept gladly the bread which endures to life eternal. That is a, a beautiful, again, Spurgeon had a way with words. You can see a little bit of a difference between J.C. Ryle and Spurgeon in some of their, uh, Spurgeon just definitely was a wordsmith. Um, but one of the things you can see there so beautifully is the fact that this was illustrating here that Jesus is the bread of life. He is the one, in, in providing this miracle, he was highlighting the full sufficiency and willingness and power that he had to save us, and he gives himself to us as bread to a hungry soul. And, and in doing so, uh, Christ is, is here and giving us freely and saying, take all that you want, take all of me, he says. And as, as Spurgeon so beautifully says, there's nothing in the way and we want to go to the world and tell them, listen, you're a sinner. He's a savior. You two go well together. He'll save you. There's, no, there's nothing that stands in the way. Go grab him and take him. He won't be offended. That's what he's here for. You're a sick person. He's a physician. Well, you two go well together. And you can't go and see the doctor too much because this doctor loves to be used. He loves it whenever you come to him for healing. And similarly for you, dear Christian, because sometimes, I don't know if you felt this way ever, but it can be tempting to think that this gospel message may be for the people outside of the church, but inside the church you think maybe that this isn't for you anymore, or that the grace of Christ once again offering you this bread is not for you anymore. But that's wrong. This same Jesus is still the bread of life for you as well. He is the water for your soul. He is the life for your deadness. He is the light in your darkness. He is everything to you. And you're still, you still have those, the sickness in your heart. Well, come to him again. Come to him again. There is no need to stay back. No need to tarry. Here he is. And he's working miracles. Who knows if we could put on spiritual goggles, so to speak. Who knows what we could see happening um, as, as the gospel is shared one-on-one -on -one between believers, as we encourage each other. Who knows what we would see happening in all the smallest little details of our individual lives or when we're praying together or when we're in Sunday school or when the children's church is going on or in Sunday school for the children is going on or the youth or whenever we're gathered together for corporate worship. Who knows how the Lord is breaking the bread of life and feeding all of us hungry souls in different ways. He is sufficient for us in all of these ways. Okay, one last section I want to read to you uh, for this week is from J.C. Ryle, uh, Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. And this is the Syrophoenician woman. The woman, right, who is a Gentile, she comes to Jesus. The disciples say, Jesus, send her away. She keeps bugging us. And uh, Jesus uh, kind of, he, he tells her that he wasn't sent to the Gentiles. He was only sent to Israel. And she beautifully comes and pleads with him, but also argues with him and says, yes, Lord. Um, because Jesus says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, right? The children would be Israel and the dogs would be her, a Gentile. And she says, yes, 
That's true, but even the crumbs that fall from the master's table, the, the dogs eat. And she's highlighting the fact that I may be a dog, what she's saying, but just one little crumb that falls from your table is enough to do whatever, is enough to heal my child. She shows such great understanding and comprehension and grasp with such faith who this Jesus is. But Ryle points out that this is also a great example of prayer. Her coming to Christ and pleading with him is a wonderful instance, an example to us of the power and, uh, and of prayer. And so he writes this about this passage. In the first place, this passage is meant to encourage us to pray for others. The woman who came to our Lord in the history now before us must doubtless have been in deep affliction. She saw a beloved child possessed by an unclean spirit. She saw her in a condition in which no teaching could reach the mind and no medicine could heal the body, a condition only one degree better than death itself. She hears of Jesus and beseeches him to cast the demon out of her daughter. She prays for one who could not pray for herself and never rests until her prayer is granted. By prayer, she obtains the cure which no human means could obtain. Through the prayer of the mother, the daughter is healed. On her own behalf, that daughter did not speak a word, but her mother spoke for her to the Lord and did not speak in vain. Hopeless, And desperate as her case appeared, she had a praying mother. And where there is a praying mother, there is always hope. The truth here taught is one of deep importance. The case here recorded is one that does not stand alone. Few duties are so strongly recommended by scriptural example as the duty of intercessory prayer. There is a long catalog of instances in Scripture which show the benefits that may be conferred on others by praying for them. The nobleman's son at Capernaum, the centurion's servant, the daughter of Jairus, are all striking examples. Incredible as it may seem, God is pleased to do great things for souls when friends and relations are moved to pray for them. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, James 5, 16. Fathers and mothers are especially bound to remember the case of this woman. They cannot give their children new hearts. They can give them Christian education and show them the way of life, but they cannot give them a will to to choose Christ's service and a heart to love God. Yet there is one thing they can always do. They can pray for them. They can pray for the conversion of profligate sons who will have their own way and run greedily into sin. They can pray for the conversion of worldly daughters who set their affections on things below and love pleasure more than God. Such prayers are heard on high. Such prayers will often bring down blessings. Never, never let us forget that the children for whom many prayers have been offered seldom finally perish. Let us pray more for our sons and daughters, even when they will not let us speak to them about religion They cannot prevent us speaking for them to God. I think that's a wonderful reminder again of prayer. Uh, Something that uh, I think we talked about it maybe last week, right? About with Jesus's prayer in Gethsemane, about how important that was. And um, prayer is a difficult thing in the Christian life. And yet it is so important, isn't it? Such an important part of religion, of Christianity, is going to our God in prayer. And here... 
uh, we have a wonderful example of this woman who prayed to Jesus with dedication, with perseverance, and she came to Jesus, and she he answered her prayer. And I think that's also a special reminder to us as we think about the little ones that roam the building here. Um, while on the one hand, they are not members of this church until they believe in Christ and are baptized, on the other hand, they do have a special relationship to the church, and they have a special, um, I guess we could say, a special place in our prayers. They are the children of the church. They are the. They have a, a special relationship as part of the broader community here at MMBC. Are we praying for them? Do we pray that the infants and the toddlers and the young ones and the youth that are growing up in the, uh, the ministries of our church that come and hear the sermons that are amongst us as believers, are we praying for them? Not even simply for, I think, first of all, we should be praying for our own children. And I, as a parent, I know I do that. I know you do that. And we pray for our grandchildren. But also, let's pray together for all of the children here. Because we want all of them to know Jesus Christ and to be mighty pillars in the church. We want them to know the God of their fathers. We want them to know the God of the fathers that they live with, and, and we trust that God will God delights to take a family and to use that to carry on his, his, his mission in the world, and he delights to save the children of believers. He delights to do that. And we should cry out mightily to him for that. As we, as we teach them the gospel, as they are taught it here at church, as they're taught it at home. And perhaps that's another thing as well we should remind ourselves is, not only are we to be praying for our children, but are we discipling them? Are we sharing the gospel with them at home and training them up in the ways of the Christian religion at home? This doesn't mean you have to have a a master's degree in Christianity or whatever or what but are we reading the Bible? Are we praying with them? Are we teaching them about Jesus and what he did for us and why we need that? Our sin, uh, his salvation, how we pray, uh, what God expects from us. You know the 10 commandments about about the faith. Those basic elements God will use that. He delights to use those things. Now of course we don't want to um, um, say that we know what will happen in every single case. We do not say that because God's word does not say that either. But on the other hand, on the other hand, we have every encouragement in the word of God to pray for our children, to pray for other people in our church, to pray for them and expect that God will answer our prayers somehow. And we also know that he delights to save sinners, and his heart is set upon grace and love and offers free forgiveness to all who hear the gospel of Christ. So let's pray together. Let's be a praying people together, and let's pray for our church family, but also for the children of the church, um, the children who roam these halls, because our hope and our prayer is that they will be the same ones to carry on the work of their mother and father 
here in this building or in another part of the Christian family worldwide, perhaps, um, that they will carry on the work somehow, some way, and be part of the people of God, a part of this spiritual family that is the Church of Jesus Christ. Well, thank you so much for listening uh, to this. Thank you for being with us as we've studied the scriptures. Next week is week eight. Uh, We will be looking at Mark 8. Remember, we're going to start that turn now in Mark's gospel. The first eight chapters, roughly, um, to the middle of the eight chapters, the powerful Messiah, the second part, the suffering servant. So now we're going to start seeing Jesus revealing now, not only is he the powerful one, but he's the one who came to suffer Uh, for our sins. So keep reading the New Testament. I hope to hear from you if you have any questions or comments. Um, uh, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. And thank you for listening to this. Take care and God bless.